We'll begin with our Old Testament lesson, Numbers 9, 15 to 23, which can be found on page 114 in your pew Bibles or 222 in the large print. Numbers 9. And this is uh, the time when the people are wandering in the wilderness. There we go. And yet God is present with his people and makes his presence known. We'll read about that in just a second, but first let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we thank you for the rain that we have received, and we thank you for the ways that you provide for everything that we need. God, we thank you for your word that we have uh, to read, to hear from this morning. And we thank you for your spirit that you have given to your church that we can not only read, but that we can understand. Lord, we ask that this morning... that by your word and by your spirit, you would continue the work of transformation in our hearts and lives, that you would continue to change us more and more into the likeness of Jesus, into the people that we were created to be from the beginning. And God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 through 23. It says, On the day the tabernacle... Uh, On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law, was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night, it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp, and then at his command, they would set out. Sometimes the cloud stayed only from evening till morning, and when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or by night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped, and at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. If you've been wondering what the picture on the front of the bulletin is, what we just read... There it is. Turning then to Acts chapter 2. We'll read of the Spirit uh, coming to the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And uh, rather than just reading the very first part of that, we want to read a bit more. Um, But in order to... um, not have the reading take too long. 
we'll actually be skipping over the parts where Peter uh, calls back to the Old Testament. And so those are there. You can read them. You can look them up in the Old Testament as well. But we will be skipping over those parts as we go and just give you the overview of the sermon. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. That is, the disciples. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. (laughs) Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, which you can read for yourself. He continues, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He quotes David in the Psalms and says, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Skipping. It says, Therefore, Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children And for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. This is the account of that Pentecost day when the Spirit came to the church. And we see some amazing things happening there. But... One of the things that I want to point out is this idea of fire coming on their heads, which people all the time are, what what is that? 
Why is there fire, or what looks like fire, coming on their heads? Do you remember what we just read from Numbers of the presence of God where he would um, become, where he would make his presence known in a particular location? And it's always this, um, it's always associated with fire, with something very, very bright. And it's usually has to be covered up somehow because even to look at that is too much. Too much for us. And so he makes his appearance known in some sort of symbol. It's usually very bright, very fire-like. And so the cloud that comes down to the tabernacle looks like fire all night long. And this is how we see the presence of God manifested at that particular location. On Pentecost, you have the people who have been following Jesus, who have heard his teachings, who have seen his miracles, who know that he has been crucified, but also who have seen him raised to life again. And here we have the church. And they're hiding, and they're afraid. They're where they are because Jesus had told them, don't go do anything yet until the Spirit comes on you. And then you'll receive power and you'll go out and you will tell everybody about me. And so when we see that there's this rushing wind and there's these, what seems like tongues of fire on their heads, that is the symbol of the very presence of God, not in a particular geographical location anymore. It's not over the Holy of Holies area of the tabernacle or even the temple, as we see in other places. But it's now with the believers. The presence of God, through his Holy Spirit, is with the believers. And that's what the whole tongues of fire thing is about, symbolizing the presence of God with his people. With his people. Um... The other thing about this uh, day that gets people a little confused is this whole speaking in other tongues thing. What is that about? Same question that was asked way back then. Why is it that everybody starts speaking in, in all these other languages? What's going on here? And it's been pointed out, this is actually kind of an undoing of the Tower of Babel. If you remember back from Genesis chapter 11 when we have uh, people who gather together and they're all speaking one language, they're going to build this big tower, and God says, no, you're not going to do that. In fact, I'm going to confuse your language so that you can't finish the tower. You cannot get the job done because you can't communicate with each other. And so there we have all these different languages uh, start happening at that point. Well, Pentecost, we have people who speak one language, speaking lots of languages again, but the purpose is entirely different. Here's the deal. With the Tower of Babel, you have all the people coming together to build a tower. Why? They say, come on, let's go build a tower so that we can make our name great. We want everybody in the world to know how great we are. And God says, wrong. (laughs) That's not the plan here. You're not doing that. And so their language is confused. They start speaking these different languages so they can't understand each other. So they can't complete the project of telling everyone how great they are. Pentecost, suddenly the Spirit of God comes to the people and says, now you're going to speak these other languages so that they can understand you. Because now your message is not, hey, look how great we are. The message is, look how great God is. 
Not look what we have done, look what we have built, but look what God has done that we could never do on our own. And that's why I went ahead and read uh, Peter's sermon and not just the fact that people had fire on their heads and they start talking in tongues. <laughs> Neat as that is, until we understand that that happened for a reason, that the fire symbolized God's presence with his people and through the Holy Spirit of God coming to dwell within us. And therefore, we now have the power to, of communication to communicate the message that's been given to us, the message about Jesus. That is what we then see Peter doing. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Let me tell you what this is about. It's all about Jesus. So, what is our message? The same. It's all about Jesus. Who is this Jesus? That's the question we've been uh, answering for some time now. We looked at this whole last uh, school year, basically, um, looked at the book of Hebrews and saw how as you go through the whole of the Old Testament, you can look all the way through there and see uh, that no matter what had, been, had come before, Jesus is better than all of it. He fulfills all of it in a way that none of it could. And he provides the way to God in a more complete way than any of that ever could. And then, when we finished that up, we started looking at how Jesus then talks about himself. Not just what we say, well... I think Jesus might be like this, or if I were Jesus, this is how I would be, (laughs) this is what I would say about myself. But we're looking at what Jesus says about himself. We looked at how he said that he is the resurrection and the life, and how he said that he is the way and the truth and the life, and how he said that um, he is the true vine. He is the vine, we are the branches. In him we bear much fruit, apart from him we can do nothing. We looked last week when he said that he is the bread of life. And this week, this Pentecost Sunday with all these images of fire and light, we see Jesus at the Festival of Tabernacles in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, right by where the candelabra would stand, where they would light the lights each day of the festival to symbolize God's presence with his people. And then put it out at the end and have to be sad that his presence was not dwelling in the temple the way that it had before. The cloud was gone. The fire was gone. And Jesus stands by this and says to them, in John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20, Says when he spoke again, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, 
Where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Have you ever heard people say um, that they believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but that he wasn't God? He was not God in the flesh. Have you ever heard them go further than that and say the reason why they think that is because Jesus never claimed to be God? I've heard people say, show me, show me somewhere in any of the Gospels where Jesus says, I am God. Because he doesn't do it. Which is true. He does not use those words. But he doesn't use those words because he doesn't have to use those words. And so to force, uh, to force that is really a false issue. Because what Jesus is doing over and over again is showing that he is both true God and true man in one. Fully God, fully divine. When he says, I am the true vine, he's saying, I am the person who is living the way that all people were supposed to live, the way that Israel was supposed to live in complete obedience to God. But they didn't. He did. He got it right when everybody else got it wrong. But he also says that he is uh, the vine and we are the branches. It's only in him. It's only as we stay connected to him that we have life and that we can bear fruit. He says he's the bread of life. It's only in him that we have sustenance. And here when he says that he is the light of the world, that is a very different statement than anybody else, any religious teacher is going to make. Everybody else points to the light. Everybody else says, I'm not the light, but I can help you find the light. I can reflect the light, but that's not me. And Jesus stands right there in the temple courts and says, I am the light of the world. The reason why people, why John has to tell us then um, that no one seized him because his hour had not yet come is because he had just made a statement that would have been worth seizing him over. He has just claimed to be God, the source of light. Um, I find it interesting he doesn't say, I'm the sun, which when we think, what is the light of the world? The sun, right? You know, when uh, you read Genesis chapter 1, and it talks about the creation, it talks about God putting uh, two great lights in the sky, the greater light to light uh, the earth by day, and the lesser light to light the earth by night. And it doesn't say the sun and the moon. Because people tended to worship the sun and the moon. And so, just ignoring all, kind of sidestepping all that paganism and the worshiping of those things is pointing out that God is over all of it. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, it again sidesteps the issue of, oh, he means he's the sun and we should you know, now worship the sun. No, but he's using this as a metaphor, and we get it 
because he says, I am the light of the world. And we understand that we need light. We need light to see. We need light to live. If the sun stopped shining, we would stop living. The plants would all die. And the whole food chain would break down. And we would all die. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the source of life, but he's also the illumination of truth. You know that if you are driving along 277 late at night, you really don't want to do that without your headlights on. That is a dangerous area. There are curves, there are deer. If you don't have light, you better be driving real slow. (laughs) But with your headlights on, you can see clearly, drive along. In the middle of the day, even better. The sun is up, the sun is shining, and you can see what's coming up ahead so that you don't wreck and crash. Jesus says that he is the light of the world, which is a huge claim that he's making of his own identity. But did you catch what followed that? He says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you remember when we were reading in the book of Numbers that the people would follow the pillar of cloud and fire, cloud by day, fire by night, that when it stayed in a place, they said, all right, then this is where we're camping. But when it started moving, they said, let's pack it up and go because we're going wherever, wherever God goes, that's where we're going. We're going to follow the light. And sometimes it would only stop in a place one night and then move on. And sometimes it would stay there for years. God knows what he's doing. He leads us where we need to be. And Jesus says, if you will follow me, you will have the light of life. You will be able to see those twists and turns in the road. You'll be able to see the dangers that surround us. In a way that many don't. John actually started his whole book, by the way, with this idea of light. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is um, this is where we are in the history of the world. God has created the world; He's created people, and people have turned away. And by turning away from the light, we have stumbled around in darkness ever since. Apart from turning back to God and receiving the light of life. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, 
That doesn't mean, so you might find me helpful. It means, when he says, I am the light of the world, he means, in me alone will you find life. In me alone will you find truth. Real knowledge of the way things are, not the groping around and guessing based on how things seem. But when the light comes on, you know how they are. No, I'm going to go here. Ravi Zacharias. You've heard me quote him probably too many times. But this is good. He says that the pursuit of the Hebrews was idealized and symbolized by light. I want you to know that there are way too many places the Bible mentions light for me to cover even a small fraction of them. As you are doing your own devotional readings over the next week, wherever you are currently in the Bible, you will probably find some mention of light. Make note of it. Especially um, with Jesus' statement that he is the light of the world. The reason for that As Ravi points out, the pursuit of Hebrews was idealized and symbolized by light. As in, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. This is the light that lighteth every man that comes into the world. That's the Hebrews. The Greeks, on the other hand, the pursuit of the Greeks was symbolized by knowledge. That's why the biblical writers say, these things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. So for the Hebrews, it was light. For the Greeks, it was knowledge. For the Romans... It was glory. The glory of the city of Rome. The glory of the city that wasn't built in a day. And here we have it. The Apostle Paul, a Hebrew by birth, a citizen of Rome, living in a Greek city, had to give them the ideal of his ethic. And he says this. You ready for this? God, who caused the light to shine out of darkness, has caused his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus our Lord. For the Apostle Paul, the ultimate ethic was not an abstraction, not symbolized merely by light, not merely by knowledge, not merely by glory, but by the very face of our Lord. John begins his book not only by talking about light, but by explaining that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That God, who has been symbolized by light throughout the whole history of his people, because they could not see him face to face without dying, has come to earth in the person of Jesus The person who says, I am the light of the world. And yet, you can see him face to face. Not because we have come up high enough or been good enough, but because he has lowered himself to what we need, that we can experience him personally. That we can come to know the light of life. That we can come to walk in that light. Scott read earlier from 1 John chapter 1. Um, 
about if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. This is not an abstract concept. It is a metaphor and a very important one. But it helps us to understand how God has come to us in the person of Jesus, that we could know him, and through knowing him, that we would know real life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.